So today, uh, for, for our sermon, we're going to cover about seven years of Israel's history and about seven chapters of the Bible. So we're going to have to uh, summarize some sections, encourage you to be reading through those first six chapters of 2 Samuel. Uh, leading up to next Sunday, we'll look at really the key chapter in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, which is God's covenant with David. And really that comes up time and again in Scripture, so it's a pretty important chapter of the Bible, but really these first six chapters of 2 Samuel set the stage for that covenant, that promise that God makes to David, that covenant that he establishes with him. And so really the theme that I would see here in the end of Saul's reign as king and the beginning of David's reign as king, there's kind of two things. One is the reunification of the nation of Israel. So there's unity that comes here as David's kingdom is established. And then what comes from that unity is rejoicing and joy and worship. And so really I see a theme for us today as well. You know, we're not just reading an ancient history book here. We're not uh, reading a book of good moral principles. We're reading the Word of God inspired by His Spirit delivered to His people Israel But we are also the New Testament people of God today. So as we go to God's word, we come with that humility that says, God, speak to us by your spirit. Change our hearts. Draw us into your presence. Help us to, as we come to those passages in Scripture that we go, I don't like this, that instead of changing God's word, we submit our hearts to him and say, God, change our hearts. If if you're not finding things in God's word that don't sit well with you, you're not reading it enough. Right? I'll say that again. If, you, if you're only reading passages of Scripture that you already agree with, you need to dig in a little bit deeper. There are things in here that confront our worldviews, our presuppositions, our biases, our beliefs, our sin nature. And so as we come to God's Word, we come and say, God, change me by your Word, by your truth. Change me by your Spirit. Lord, I come as those that the New Testament calls those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see. And so that's our heart today as we go to God's Word. I pray that that's where you are today. And if not, maybe that little pep talk will get you there, right? So the context here as as this unity and rejoicing is happening among God's people, a few principles that we see uh, in David's life. The first thing is that time and again, whenever David has the opportunity to retaliate to seek retribution for those that have wronged him. He doesn't go that way. Instead, David consistently repays evil with good. So here at the end of 1 Samuel, we saw uh, some battle scenes that were taking place. We covered those last Sunday. In chapter 29, the Philistines were going up to Jezreel against Israel, against the, the, the armies of Saul. And at that time, David had been hiding out among the Philistines. And so David was invited to join in battle against his own people, the Israelites. But then the commanders of the Philistine armies get a little bit nervous and apprehensive about that, so they convince Achish to exclude David from these battles. Well, then in chapter 30, as David is now returning from that uh, time in, in, in among the Philistines, the Amalekites raid the city of Ziklag where, where the wives and children of David and his men are. And they, they loot and plunder that area. So then David pursues them, defeats them, rescues the wives and the children, the livestock, all the belongings, gives glory to God. That's that passage that Brady read today where the, there's generosity that comes as God is the one who fights the battles and brings deliverance. 
Well, then at the very end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, now the Philistines do go into battle against the armies of Saul. And this is the end of Saul's life, that final battle on Mount Gilboa. Just one letter off from Gilboy. I just noticed that. Where the Philistines kill uh, and rout the, the Israelites. In fact, they kill three of Saul's four sons there on the battlefield. Uh, the names of, of Saul's sons there in 1 Samuel 31, it's always, it's always interesting to look at the, the meaning of the names in the Hebrew Bible because usually they are significant to the stories in which they occur. So for example, my name in my Hebrew class, so you're studying a foreign language, you pick a name that works in that language. So there's a character in uh, the books of the kings named Jephthah. So I thought, well, that's pretty close to Jeph. So in Hebrew, that's Yiftach. Well, in Hebrew, that's from the, the verb to open. And Yiftach, Jephthah, is the guy who vowed to consecrate to the Lord the next thing that came out of the door of his house when the door opened. And if you know the story, it was his daughter. So not a real, a real heroic guy, but his name sounds like mine. And, and there you'll see that the, the meaning of the word contained within the, the name. Another example would be Isaac which is like the Hebrew word for to laugh. And so what did Sarah do when the angel came and said, hey, old lady, you're going to have a baby? Well, she laughed about that. And so then the son's name is laughter, has to do with laughter. So here, the three sons of Saul that are killed on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 31, the first one is Jonathan, Jonathan. And that, that's two parts of a word. One is from that, the Hebrew name for God, which if you're a good Hebrew scholar, you don't pronounce it because it's so holy and sacred. So when you see that Y-H-W-H in Scripture, instead of saying Yahweh, you don't say that. You say the name, Hashem, or you say Adonai, which is the name for the Lord. And so the beginning of Jonathan's name is that Y-H-W-H, the, the unpronounceable name of God because it's so holy and reverent, the Lord. And then the second part of his name is to give. So the Lord gives. That's the name of Jonathan, who was the friend of David that we met throughout the, the book of 1 Samuel. The second son of Saul uh, is, is a, a man named Abinadab. And that comes from two Hebrew words meaning my father and liberal or generous. Okay, so again, a positive name. And then the third son that's killed in battle, Malchishua which is my king and then save. You might hear um, uh, Jeshua, Yeshua. Uh, that's God saves a name for Jesus or Joshua. And so that, that name, Malchishua, the third son of Saul, my king saves. So three, three sons with three good names. There's a fourth son not mentioned in 1 Samuel 31 because he does not die on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa. We don't get to meet him until 2 Samuel chapter 8. And his name, not such a good name, the, the surviving son, his name, or 2 Samuel chapter 2, I should say. His name is Ishbosheth, and that means man of shame. So he's the, lo the, the lone surviving son of Saul. His name, again, occurs in, in the, the chronicles of the history of Israel. 1 Chronicles chapter 8, slightly different version of his name. Same guy, but his name there is Eshbaal. And so that would be the Lord or Baal is or exists. So either way, not, not such a favorable name for, there for this fourth son that we're going to meet a little bit later today. But the main point being there uh, in 1 Samuel 31, the, 
the judgment that God has promised on the house of Saul comes to pass. And so the, the three sons are dead there on the battlefield. And then we hear of the death of Saul. Now, as you unpack 1 Samuel 31 and you get into 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's a question of who killed Saul. So in, in 1 Samuel 31, there's kind of this progression of Saul's death on the battlefield. First of all, he's mortally wounded by the Philistine archers. Verse 3. And so there as he's dying, he's knowing how, how horrible and evil the Philistines are, how they're going to mistreat him. And he doesn't want the, 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 um, now the, the advancing army of the Philistines to find him in this mortally wounded state. So he turns to his armor bearer and he says, please finish me off. I'm going to die. I want to die before the Philistines get up to me. So I'm asking you as your final loyal act to kill me. And the armor bearer says, I can't do it. You're the Lord's anointed. I won't take your life. And so is Saul killed by the Philistine archers? Oh, yes, in a sense. But then Saul falls on his own sword and dies in verse 31, 4 through 5. So in a sense, Saul takes his own life. Uh, and then the Philistines do arrive. They cut off his head. They take the body of Saul and his three sons and they hang them on the wall to gloat and to show their dominance and superiority, their victory in battle. And those bodies are on display until the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead arrive and they remove these bodies from the wall and they burn them and give the bones a proper burial. And David enters into that story with the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead a little bit later, 2 Samuel 1. So in one sense, the Philistine archers kill Saul. In another sense, he takes his own life by falling on the sword together with his own armor bearer. But then in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we hear, we hear another version of the death of Saul. As a young Amalekite slave comes to David now, and he's got the crown of Saul and the armlet of Saul, these royal uh, artifacts, and he, he presents them to David, and he brings a report that he encountered Saul on the battlefield, leaning on his sword, having fallen down, after he had fallen, he says, and he says that he, he personally finished off King Saul at Saul's request. I tend to think that, that the Amalekite is lying here, uh, that he's trying to seize this opportunity to curry favor with David. You know, hey, I've got good news for you, King David. Your enemy's dead, and I brought you his crown and his armlet. In fact, kudos to me. I'm the one who actually finished him off. So that's one way that you could read that. It is possible that maybe this is a third progression in the death of Saul, that maybe when he says he's leaning on his spear, he means you know, he's just impaled himself, and he's still breathing his last dying gasps, and maybe this Amalekite comes and actually does finish him off. So, so we're still digging into this question, who killed Saul? And finally, I think the answer is really, as you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, which is the Chronicles, the history of Israel, all summarized in one, in one book there, First uh, and Second Chronicles, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Chronicles 10 tell us that the Lord put Saul to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So ultimately, whatever human agency that God used, it was God's divine judgment. God was the one who directed the arrows of the Philistines uh, to, to, toward Saul. God was the one who ordained and, and chose this is the day that Saul will die at the battle of Mount Gilboa. Ultimately, it was God who put, them, put him to death. 
And then I guess that leaves us with the question of why would God do something like that? Why would God order the death of the man that he had chosen to lead his people? Well, we've seen that answer as we've gone through 1 Samuel, and the chronicler makes it explicit there also in chapter 10. It says that there were three, four reasons really that God chose to end Saul's life. Number one is that he had broken faith with the Lord. And then as examples of that, really, number two, that he broke the commands of the Lord. We saw examples of that in chapter 13 and chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 13, when the man of God, Samuel, said, Saul, go and wait. I will be there in seven days to offer the sacrifice. And Saul didn't wait. As soon as that seventh day arrived, he himself offered the sacrifice. And then in chapter 15, when God said, Saul, I'm calling you to go and exact divine judgment against the Amalekites, I want you to annihilate them, wipe them out. And Saul held back the best for himself on that day and was not willing to obey the word of the Lord. So he broke the commands of the Lord. And then another reason that's listed there in 1 Chronicles 10 is that Saul sought guidance from a medium. That instead of seeking guidance from the Lord, he went to a witch and said, can you conjure up a spirit of someone who's died that I can seek guidance from them? And he ended up having another conversation with Samuel after Samuel's death, in which Samuel really just reiterated all the stuff he'd already told him. You're in big trouble, Saul. And so for these reasons, God is the one who killed Saul. Undoubtedly, Saul was an enemy of David, pursuing him, hunting him, trying to spear him. Time and again, even when he would repent for a while and turn in another direction and say, well, David, you're right, I'm wrong, I'll stop trying to kill you. The very next chapter, he'd have his spear out once again. And so persistently throughout these years of David's life, as he was fleeing and hiding and on the run, Saul was clearly an enemy. And so as we go to 2 Samuel, a, a question I'm asking is, well, how is David going to respond? The Amalekite thought he would rejoice. He thought David would throw a party. He thought they, that David would, would give him a prestigious place in his kingdom now as the new king. I've delivered the crown and the armlet of King Saul. I've brought good news. What's, what's the blessing that I'm going to receive? But for the Amalekite, David responded quite differently than he had anticipated. And David says in 1 Samuel 1, or 2 Samuel 1.14, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And he orders the immediate execution of this young Amalekite slave. And then David prays a, a prayer of lament. He sings a song of lament over Saul and Jonathan. And his attitude toward his enemy is one of grief at his demise. It's one of blessing. It's one of commemorating anything good that he can see in this enemy who's hunted him down and pursued him. He is, is giving an example of repaying evil with good. And this is pleasing to the people of Israel. And as, as the story unfolds now, as really that lament of David at the end of chapter 1 marks the end of the Saul-David story and the beginning of the David story. And so then we get into chapter 2 as now the David story is really beginning. It says the first thing that David does there, and look at chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. 
Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? So even for that just daily task, God, what direction do I go? Where do I go, Lord? David inquired of the Lord. What a contrast to what we saw what we saw Saul doing in 1 Samuel 28 as he went to the medium to seek guidance. Now David is going and inquiring of the Lord right from the beginning of his kingship. And, and, and God responds. God answers. God directs. God guides him. He begins to establish his kingdom. David goes then up into Judah. He goes to, to praise the men of Jabesh Gilead who had done well by Saul and, and his sons. And they'd honored him with a proper burial. And that's in contrast to the mistreatment of the Lord's anointed by the young Amalekite in chapter 1. The valiant men of Jabesh Gilead have treated well the anointed of God. And by doing so, showing their reverence for God, not whoever happened to be on the throne at that time. I think there's a lesson for us in that as well that we we honor and respect the Lord by showing honor and respect for anyone in authority in our lives, whether it's a, a parent, a boss, employer, that when we show respect and honor, it's really not to that human who happens to occupy that office, but it's showing our respect and honor and trust in the Lord. And David wanted to set up that sort of a, of a kingdom. You know, he is now the Lord's anointed, so there may be a little bit of a selfish ulterior motive in that, and yet... This is a good culture to have where we show our trust and respect in the Lord by respecting those who he has raised up. And when God needs to deal with somebody, he's very able to do so as he did with Saul. And really, the key verse of of this story now comes in chapter 3, verse 1, this part of the establishment of David's kingdom. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Do you remember I mentioned the fourth son of Saul, Ishbosheth, who didn't die on Mount Gilboa that day with his dad and his three brothers? Well, David is anointed king over the southern region of Judah, but Abner, the commander of Saul's army, takes that fourth living son, Ishbosheth. And he anoints him as king over the, the northern region of Israel. So now really the, the kingdom continues to be divided going forward. It's, it's officially divided now. Prior to this, David had been anointed king, but he had not really taken any leadership or rule besides over the 600 distressed, uh, depressed, malcontented warriors that he had fighting with him together with, his fam- with their families. But now really we have a divided nation. And for two years, the kingdom is divided still. But what's happening here, chapter 3, verse 1, gives us the overall picture that the influence of Saul is diminishing and David's reign is increasing. David is growing stronger and stronger and Saul is growing weaker. It's a sad time in Israel's history. The end of chapter 2, we read about this brother-against-brother battle that occurs because of the divided kingdom. And on the one hand, you have Abner, the commander of Saul's armies. And on the other side, you've got Joab, the commander of David's armies. And, and they're, they're, there are brothers that are slaughtering one another. And, and really, that sets up a confrontation between Joab and Abner that, that is to come. 
So there's war between these two houses. But time and again, David's response toward his enemy is really key. He, he grieved Saul's death. And here in chapter 3, Joab hunts down Abner and kills him and really sets himself up as the only commander of both, both armies, Israel and Judah. And David, again, he mourns Abner's death. And he, he unites the nation in mourning and grieving over the death of the commander of Saul's army. And then in chapter 4, Ishbosheth is hunted down and murdered. And once again, David responds not with celebration, like, finally, I have crushed all of the descendants of my enemy Saul. But no, David grieves and he leads the nation in grieving. In fact, he avenges Ishbosheth by having his two murderers put to death as well. David's response time and again toward his enemies is to repay evil with good. We have a character all the way back in the Old Testament during the time when the law was repay an eye for an eye and a tooth with a tooth. If somebody pops you in the jaw, get them back. So back in the Old Testament, we have this person who, it's as if he's heard the Sermon on the Mount from the New Testament. And Jesus, in chapter 5 of Matthew, saying, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Or Paul to the Romans in chapter 12, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Paul to the church in Rome. And finally, Peter in 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling with reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We have a character in the Old Testament who's already living out these New Testament principles preached by Jesus, demonstrated in the early church, instructions given to us today. Listen to some of those action verbs that we're, we are required to when there's been something, someone who's hunted us down, pursued us, opposed us, stood in the way, been our enemy not to retaliate, not to gloat in the suffering of our enemy. But Jesus says, pray for the enemy. Paul says, feed our enemy, give them something to drink. Peter says, bless our enemies. So those are our actions that we are called to as God's people. If you have a theology that allows you to demonstrate hatred for your enemy, You need to dig back in and be confronted with the truth of God's Word. We're called to bless, to feed, to to pray for our enemies, not to seek their demise, not to retaliate, not to seek retribution. And really, by our love for our enemy, we're showing our love for God. 
We're showing that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Think about how Jesus responded toward his enemies. On the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's not just the people gathered there on Golgotha that day. We were, we were all enemies of God while we were still in our sins. And he's praying for us that day as the enemies of God and saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's how Jesus treated us as his enemies, brought us close to himself, to himself, gave us that gift of redemption so that we can now walk in his footsteps and be in right relationship with God. When we show love for the enemy, we're, dis- we're displaying the fruits of the Spirit. Think about a tree with the, the branches hanging out, and this time of the year, we've been getting cheap apples at Sprouts because it's, it's a good time of the year to harvest apples. And all that fruit hanging from the branches, the Galatians calls that fruits of the Spirit. And each of these really are part of what the heart of a believer should be. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Our Lady's Bible study is just wrapping up a, a study of those fruits of the Spirit one by one. Are we practicing those fruits toward our enemies? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, my sister, I remember in fifth grade, had a bully on the, on the school bus that every morning would make it her mission to, to hunt her down, to taunt her, to pick on her, to give her a little shove, whatever it was. So she talked to my, my dad about it at nighttime. Well, you know, listen, listen to what she did today. And so... My dad read some of these passages that, that we just read from the New Testament, that I quoted from the New Testament, that are printed in your sermon notes, and you can look up a little bit more carefully when you get home. And so my sister in fifth grade came up with the idea of making a fresh batch of chocolate chip cookies, getting a little Ziploc baggie, putting a few of those cookies in there. And the next morning on the school bus, when the bully shoved her, she pulled out these chocolate chip cookies and said, hey, I made these for you, and I just wanted to give you this gift. And this, this girl who is bigger than my sister and was probably a good farm girl from southern Wisconsin there, you know, knew how to throw some hay bales or the little kid into the, into the bus seat, she started tearing up. She took these cookies, and that was a, a turning point for my sister having to ride that school bus. And really, you know, the principle of hurting people hurt people, it's usually true. And when there's an enemy who's hunting you down and pursuing you and taunting you and bullying you, there's probably some broken part in their heart that's causing them to behave that way. What could a small act of mercy and love do to change that hard heart? And in that simple action of handing over a little baggie of of fresh chocolate chip cookies, there was something new that this girl experienced. I think it was really the love of Jesus in a very practical, simple way from a fifth grader that allowed a a friendship to begin. What could God do through us if we were to practice love for enemy as we see David doing here in these stories? This is a a way that the, the kingdom began to be united. It's a way that rejoicing came as we're going to see in chapter 6. And all along the way, David was waiting for strength and direction from the Lord. We already saw him inquiring of the Lord. But really, it's this, it's this heart of, of 
not, not seeking retribution toward enemy, but really a, a heart posture that's saying, God, I'm, I'm waiting for you. If it means many years of hiding in the wilderness and in caves and on the run with a real enemy hunting me down, I'm trusting that you are the sovereign God. You superintend every event in human history and you know my life. And I'm going to pray lots of prayers saying, God, how long? And yet I'm going to trust in you in the midst of that waiting. David waited for God's strength. There is a contrasting figure to David in Abner, who I've already given you the preview. His his life ends here in chapter 3. But earlier, there's an interesting verse, verse uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Making himself strong. And that's in contrast to David who was waiting for God to make him strong. Abner was setting things up. He was opportunistic. The way that he did that, first of all, you know, he's the one who has set up Saul's son Ispasheth as the king of the, that northern region of Israel. But now we hear this interesting story in chapter 3 where Ishbosheth confronts Abner. He says, Abner, I've heard that you took my father Saul's concubine, Rizpah. What's going on, Ishbosheth? Uh, uh, what's going on, Ishbosheth says to Abner. Abner, you, you've, that's my dad's concubine, Rizpah, part of his, the, the royal family, and you've now taken Rizpah to your bed. We're not quite sure exactly what happened in this story because Abner just responds with rage and anger and a diatribe toward Ishbosheth. So we don't know if the accusation from Ishbosheth is indeed true. I'm, I'm inclined to think it is because of this. You know, have you ever done this with someone where you say, hey, how come you did that? And, and a smoke screen is to get all angry and, and upset and, and throw up throw up some flares and get on the attack, right? So it seems like the attitude of Abner is that he's been caught doing something that he knows he shouldn't have been doing. But he gets angry, and in fact, he vows to take Ishbosheth's throne and give it over to David. And Ishbosheth does not answer because it says that he feared Abner, verse 11. And so that sets into motion a chain of events where Abner does indeed what he threatened to do. And he, he offers David, he says, I'm going to deliver all Israel to you. That's a, a phrase that's used often in the history of God's people in the books of Chronicles. All Israel. And it's that, it's that uh, the hope that God had given back to Abraham. When Remember the blessings that God gave Abraham back in Genesis? He said, Abraham, I've chosen you. I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make your descendants like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. Through you and your descendants, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's at sad times in Israel's history when there's a divided kingdom, when there's not that unity of purpose toward glorifying God and making his glory known among the nations. And really the chronicler, by bringing up that phrase, all Israel, is pointing back to God's plans for his people. It's a sad place when the church in America is divided. 
And when we can't get traction because of disunity and camps and factions, when God's intention for his people is that we move forward with unity and rejoicing of the one true God making his glory known among the nations. And Abner now offers this, tantalizes David with this opportunity to have the the whole nation, all Israel, united. And David's requirement uh, for that to occur is that his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, be returned to him. And there's a sad story there uh, in chapter 3 when Abner says, okay, fine, let's get Michael from her husband that Saul has given her to a second time. She's still married to David, but now also married to this other dude. And, she, and he takes her and gives her to David. Her husband follows grieving and weeping. And then Abner turns him back. But really in that action, David is, is publicly connecting himself to the, the family of Saul, legitimizing his kingship, much as Abner likely did with the concubine of Saul with Rizpah. And Abner sets this reunification into motion. But it's Abner making things happen, seeking these opportunities, using people for his own advantage. That's really a theme here. We've seen that with the Amalekite who shows up with the crown and the armband. He says, hey David, give me an important place in your kingdom. I finished off your enemy, Saul. Now we see Abner doing the same thing, looking around at his circumstances. Oh, oh, Rizpah, Ishbosheth, I can work an angle here. I can use people to, to climb the, the rungs of the ladder of success and prestige and power. And he's making things happen. We see Joab then in chapter 3 at the end where he seeks an opportunity to, to end Abner's life. He hears that Abner has met with David and that David let him go alive. And he confronts David. What are you doing? That Abner is a snake. And he then takes matters into his own hand, takes his brother, goes and hunts down Abner and avenges the death of his own brother from chapter 2. Consolidates his power as the only commander of the now reunited kingdom of Israel. And then in chapter 4, we've got these two brothers, Rechab and Baanah, who murder Ishbosheth, and then they bring this News that they think is going to be good news to David, much like the Amalekite in chapter 1. Hey, David, good news. We killed the last of Saul's sons for you. And David's like, didn't you guys hear about the Amalekite a couple chapters ago? Boys, come back in and finish these guys off as well. So in contrast to these individuals and these stories of using people for your own advantage, listen to the words of David to the murderers of Ishbosheth in chapter 4, verse 9. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And then he goes on to pronounce judgment on them. But before that judgment, there's a recognition that there is a living God. That that God is the one who rescues us out of every adversity. David is not making things happen. He's not seeking ways to use people to his own advantage. In every action, in every decision, he's waiting for God's strength. He's waiting for the Lord to avenge him. He's looking to him as his source of strength and provision. And in this heart, all of Israel is reunited. David in chapter 5, early in his reign, he goes up to Jerusalem, now the, the city in the northern kingdom in Israel, the very southern part of that, right on the border of Judah and Israel. 
and he's going to establish his, his kingdom there. Really a good move if you've been the king over the southern portion for two years while there's been a, a, a warring king there, Ishbosheth of the house of Saul in the north. Good idea to go and now establish your kingdom in the north because that sends a message that, hey, we're united. In fact, we're going to put the capital city in your region, northern tribes, and we're all going to worship the one true living God together. But there in Jerusalem, there's a group of people called the Jebusites. Second Samuel 5 calls them people of the land. What that means is that they are part of the banned Canaanite tribes that are still dwelling in this promised land. If you go back, you read the, books, the book of Joshua, that when, when the, the nation of Israel, after the exodus, enters the promised land, God had commanded them, drive out all the Canaanites from this land. This is the land of promise. This is going to be a place where you drive a stake in the ground and say, this territory belongs to the one true living God, maker of heaven and earth. And there's partial obedience by the Israelites, and yet there are pockets of Canaanites that are left to dwell in the land. And because of that, there is idolatry, worship of false gods. And so David, by this first action of going to Jerusalem and driving out the peoples of the land, he is aligning his purposes with those of Abraham and Moses and Joshua, those that have come before him, and saying, no, I'm going to be a king who leads the people in obeying the laws, commands, and decrees of the Lord our God, who takes the land that he has given us as a place to be blessed and to be a blessing. And, and in this way, the kingdom is reunited. There in chapter 5, there are two examples of where David is aware of the blessing that God has given him, aware of the fact that his strength comes from the Lord. Let's read together in verse 10 of chapter 5. It says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And it goes on to list the names of those that were born to him in Jerusalem. So David knew that the Lord was the one who had given him strength. He waited for God's strength, and now, as God was establishing him in this position, he recognized that it was not by any action of his own, but it was by the strength of the Lord. And there were two confirmations of that. Number one, the king of the neighboring Tyre, Hiram, is sending gifts, and he's being recognized by, by ancient Near Eastern kings in the region as a king of God's people there in Israel over all Israel, Israel and Judah combined. And then number two, the royal family is increasing. Uh, children in the Old Testament are an example, a demonstration of God's blessing. And so David is being blessed. He's taking wives from the, the northern uh, tribes. Again, a smart move if you're to be king over this entire area. And so on the one hand, there, there's good examples of blessing that are being carried out. 
On the other hand, there is this little subtle, ominous warning and echo that if you're a careful reader, if you have ears to hear, you'll see some themes that, that, that make you kind of raise one eyebrow in that verse about taking more concubines and wives. And three cautions that I detect in that. Number one, there's another wife that David will take later in 2 Samuel that will turn his entire kingdom. We'll meet her a little bit later. Her name is Bathsheba. Number two, this is really a fulfillment of the warning of Samuel in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when he's talking to the, nations of, the nation of Israel as they're demanding a king. And he says, let me just warn you, if you want a king, here's what it's going to cost you. One of the things he lists is your daughter's. And then number three, David comes dangerously close to violating the prohibition that God himself laid out in Deuteronomy 17. When you get a king, don't get a king like all the other nations. Don't get a king who goes after many wives or horses or gold. Avoid that. Instead, get a king who will make a copy of this book of the law and carry it with them every day and live as a spiritual example of what it is to follow the one true living God in obedience and faith. And so there is an ominous foreshadowing here. And yet, overall, the, the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is one of a king who's trusting in God as his strength. And I think uh, it would be appropriate to read a prayer of David on this occasion. Uh, it'd be great as, as we're studying through the books of Samuel together, if you're also in your, in your daily and weekly devotions reading through the Psalms. These are the prayers and songs of the man that we're studying about here, of King David. And so in Psalm 18, listen to this prayer of trust in the Lord's strength. It'd be a great prayer for us to pray. In fact, we will today after we read it. 2 Samuel 18, verse 27, it says, You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. If David had lived in Colorado, he might have said, like a mountain goat. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Maybe today you're at a place where you're needing strength and you've been tempted to rely on your own strength. Maybe you've been tempted to even use other people for your own advantage. And today, as we pray this prayer of David, let's remember where our strength comes from. Let's wait on him for our strength. Lord, we thank you that you save a humble people. Lord, we recognize that those who are arrogant, who elevate themselves, are enemies of your heart. So God, we pray that today you'd be the one that shows the way. You'd be the one that strengthens us. You'd, you would be the one that allows us to stand, 
to fight, to walk with confidence. Thank you that you support us by your, your good strength. In Jesus' name.